Our sermon passage this morning is from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief, chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born for this purpose. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Good morning. My name is Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. And uh, next week, our pastor, Jamie, who is here this morning, will be back in the pulpit. But uh, he's just recently returned from sabbatical, and so I'll be pinch-hitting this morning. We are beginning what is often referred to as the Passion Narrative. We've been going through the Gospel of John since, I believe, back in January. And we're now to that point where the entire book has been leading us. In fact, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the entire Bible has been leading us up to this point. Far back is Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world. God has been dealing with human sin, and this is his ultimate solution, his ultimate provision for sin and for salvation. Jesus was born into this world for the very purpose of dying. He says this many times. And in fact, early in his ministry, in John chapter 2, he began referring to his hour. The hour where he would take on the sins of humanity. And the book of John is dotted with references to Jesus' hour. And he would say, my hour has not yet come. And there were times when it looked like the Jews who hated him might kill him, but it says his time had not yet come, and he slipped away. The last week we saw in John 17 that Jesus prayed and said, Father, the hour has come. All those years of growing up, all that his sinless life has prepared him for this moment. His teachings, his miracles, Gethsemane, all that lies behind him now. He is going forward to die for us. Now, in, uh, in gospel studies, the passion narrative is that aspect of the gospels that begin with Jesus being arrested and end with his death and resurrection. That's a rather technical expression, the passion narrative. And passion there means suffering. In fact, this was the idea behind the Mel Gibson movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, which, uh, except for a brief glimpse of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room and another brief glimpse at the end of Jesus resurrected, the entire movie dealt with Jesus' trial, Jesus being condemned, Jesus being tortured, 
Jesus being led to the cross and then crucified and buried. And the reason we are here today is because of that event. The reason we can come together as the people of God is because of what Jesus did that day. And as we look at the Passion narrative, some of the things that we'll be looking at this morning, and uh, the parallels in the other Gospels, the main characters behind the scenes that come forward determined to kill Jesus. These were very powerful, dangerous men, wicked men. For instance, we just read about Annas, the high priest, and his son-in-law, who was actually the sitting high priest. Jesus is taken there first. Do you see the irony here? This narrative is riddled with paradox and irony. Here is Jesus standing before a man who calls himself the high priest and condemning the true high priest, the true sacrifice for sin. Next on the stage, Pontius Pilate, who's the judge. And yet Jesus has already told us in John chapter 5 that he is going to judge everyone. Pilate is completely clueless. In fact, Paul says that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will stand before him. There will be a horrifying role reversal for these people, particularly Pontius Pilate. And then there's Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Jesus is led there too, and he fancies himself a king, and yet the true king of the Jews is standing right in front of him. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of kings and lord of lords. But before we get too critical of these people, let's remind ourselves that that could very well be me. That could very well be you. Let's not forget that famous statement, there but by the grace of God go I. I am just as evil as Annas and Caiaphas. I am just as wicked as Herod Antipas. I deserve the wrath of God just as surely as Pontius Pilate. And the only reason I will not is because of what Jesus did for me this day. And so I'd like to begin by looking at this first section, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, where soldiers from two places come to arrest Jesus. It's, it's almost comical if it weren't so tragic. And this is what I mean by the tragedy and triumph of the cross. Human sin is a tragedy. It's horrible. It's an offense against a holy God, starting Genesis chapter 3 and continuing now for several thousand years. Rebellious men have been defying the living God. And it's this human sin that made this event necessary. But therein lies the triumph, too. He provided salvation for what we would think is the unsavable. And I want us to notice something in these first few verses. Look at verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had chosen there, had often met there with his disciples. Jesus had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He crosses this little valley between the main city proper and the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't run away. He purposely goes there. He knows full well what Judas is going to do. In fact, he sent him out of the upper room to told him to go do it. But Jesus is in full control here. He was not a victim of circumstances. That's a common explanation outside Christian circles of what happened to Jesus. They're not reading the Gospels very, clear, very carefully. Jesus was in control here. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew the police and the Roman cohort was going to be there waiting on him, and he purposely walked over there, led his disciples with him, so that they could arrest him. And notice what happens when they arrive. Notice that uh, also the Jewish leadership was doing everything they could to make sure nothing went wrong this night. Not only did they send the temple police, this is the group of military men controlled by the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and a Roman cohort. They got Pontius Pilate involved earlier to bring soldiers to arrest one man. We're talking hundreds of people coming to arrest one man who'd never done a violent thing in his life. And he says in verse 4 that Jesus came forward and asked them who they were looking for, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am. And what happens? All of them fall to the ground. John is clearly wanting us to think of Exodus chapter 3 where God's self-disclosure to Moses occurred. I am that I am. Several times in John's Gospel, Jesus uses this phrase. He simply says, I am. The Greek equivalent, a shorthand of God's statement there in Exodus chapter 3, identifying himself as the God of Israel. And the power of those words knocked these soldiers to the ground. And he could have simply turned and walked away. But he doesn't. They go through it all again. They stand up, he says, who are you looking for? I am he. And then he insists that they let his disciples go. And Jesus is now alone. Simon Peter, though, in verses 10 and 11, tries to make good on his statement in chapter 13, that he would be willing to die for Jesus. So he pulls out a dagger, the word sword is probably better translated a dagger, a knife with an extra long blade, and he whips it out and tries to split some soldier's head right down the middle. And he dodges it and cuts off his ear. And Jesus' response is, Peter, don't you know, look in verse 11, don't you know that I have to drink the cup the Father has given me, the cup of God's wrath that he had explained the night before, one of the other Gospels tells us that actually Jesus healed that person's ear 
right there on the spot. And Matthew tells us that Jesus told Peter, look, I could call 12 legions of angels to come and fight for me if I needed to. And the legion was five or 6,000 Roman soldiers, so you do the numbers. Several thousand angels would not have any trouble dealing with these soldiers. But that was not what Jesus was here for. He willingly walked into this for you and me. And then we're introduced to one of the men who is going to stand in judgment over Jesus in verse 12. But before we get to that, I want to deal with um, Peter's denials first. Um, John writes this in, in a way a modern fiction might be written. It goes from one scene back to another to show that they're actually occurring simultaneously or a director in a movie might do the same. And so I'm gonna, but I'm going to lump these together. Peter's denials occur in verses 15 to 18 and 25 to 27. The Apostle John had the luxury of writing uh, 20, 30 years after the other three Gospels were written, and so he often assumes that there is knowledge from those Gospels to the people he's writing to, so he doesn't have to go into all the detail. And that's why over 90% of John's Gospel is unique. He is providing a lot of new material about the life of Jesus. And so there's not the detail here about Peter's denials. Well, all of us are familiar with this. Peter, once again, follows closely, trying to be involved. He gets into where Jesus is on trial. He can even see what's going on. One of the disciples knows someone related to the priestly family, and they both get inside. That's probably John himself. And Peter finds himself surrounded by this powerful family and his servants. And they start asking him, hey, aren't you one of his? No, I'm not. Didn't I see you with this Jesus of Nazareth? No. Aren't you one of his followers? No, I am not. And Matthew says that he swore and cursed in his denials. And then Luke tells us that as Jesus was being led away, right then, the rooster crowed and Jesus made eye contact with Peter. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Once again, let's remind ourselves that that could so easily be us. This seems like part of the Christian life is that we fail our Lord way too often. And as you read this narrative, you might wonder, what happened to Peter? What's going to happen to Peter if you're reading this for the first time? What happened to him? Well, Jesus did not deny Peter, though. In fact, the book ends, John 21, with Jesus restoring Peter, assuring him that he wasn't through with him. He asked him three times, three denials, three times, do you love me? And three times Peter says yes, and three times Jesus says, feed my sheep. I'm not through with you, Peter. 
I still have work for you to do. I still plan on using you just as I planned on using you the day I called you to follow me. That's encouraging, isn't it? No matter how badly we may have messed it up, God still loves us. God's grace still triumphs. God still forgives because of what Jesus did for us. Okay, so let's back up and look now at uh, chapter 18, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and all the commanders and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Caiaphas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was... led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who abandoned, who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Jesus' trial actually takes place in two phases. The Jewish phase and the Romans phase. And each one has three steps to it. Up here you can see, number one is Annas. Annas was um, actually the, a former high priest and the father-in-law of the sitting high priest, Caiaphas. Annas had five sons who became high priest and a grandson, and now his father-in-law. He's the father-in-law of the high priest here, Caiaphas. And just like the President of the United States, they retain that title even after they are no longer high priest. So we can refer to President Bush or President Obama just like we would refer to President Trump, and that would all be true. Same with the high priest. And the big difference, though, is the former high priest, this one in particular, has still had a lot of power and a lot of clout and a lot of influence. And that's why Jesus was taken there first. And John is the only one that mentions this part of the Jewish, Jewish trial. This is basically a preliminary hearing. The idea here is to, for Annas, during the cover of night, to interrogate Jesus and find as much condemning information as he can that he can send on to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at a later time. But it doesn't work. Notice what happens in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Jesus is probably referring mainly to what he's been doing ever since he entered Jerusalem at the time of the triumphal entry about five or six days earlier. But this was also his modus operandi throughout his ministry to the temple in Jerusalem and in the synagogues. It was no secret what he was teaching. And it was actually illegal for Annas to do this. They weren't supposed to question him. They were supposed to bring witnesses. And Jesus refuses to cooperate. And the next thing that happens is Jesus is struck on the face by one of the guards, and Jesus rebukes him. Verse 23, I have spoken in, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? If you have witnesses of anything I've done wrong, then now is the time to bring them forward. Otherwise, you had no right to strike me. Jesus is here con- con- consistently demanding that he be treated legally and also insisting on his own innocence. He has done nothing wrong. In fact, isn't that the whole point of the cross, though? That the innocent one died for the guilty? Even in his trial, it is very clear 
that Jesus remained sinless throughout his life, all the way through this ordeal. That the sinless one could die for sinners. Now, <clears throat> once again, we see that John, knowing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already dealt at length with Jesus' interrogation before Caiaphas, simply skips over it. Notice verse 24, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And in the second phase of the second part of the, Jew, the uh, Jewish trial, he stands before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now, during the night, they were sending out word to all the members of the Sanhedrin to come together for this meeting. That was another reason to go to Annas first, give them time to get together. This first meeting was to question Jesus once again to determine what charge they could bring against him that would demand the death penalty. And the first thing they tried was desecration of the temple. Jesus had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, John chapter 2. That was three years earlier, and they still remember this. But Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, the resurrection. He had no design on destroying the temple. And yet they try to use that because that is the one area that the Romans allowed the Jews to execute people for, desecration of the temple. And yet their false witnesses didn't work. They were not consistent, so that failed. And so in the second phase, before Caiaphas and the high priest, I mean the third, part three, they turned to something else. Condemnation and death sentence for blasphemy. Are you the son of God? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus says, yes, I am. He was claiming deity for himself. He was claiming to be the coming Messiah. And to them, that was blasphemy. Surely, when the Messiah came, he would be one of them, they thought. Not this pathetic, weak carpenter. This upstart rabbi. And how many times in Jesus' ministry had he rebuked the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy? This was their moment to get even, to get rid of him. He was dangerous. And so they took the charge of blasphemy here. And that allowed them to turn that into something else that Pontius Pilate would be very interested in. Because the Messiah was also the king of the Jews. The coming Messiah would be the son of, the David, the son of David, the greater son of David, who would reign over the kingdom of Israel forever. And so when the time comes for the Roman trial, that's exactly what Pontius Pontius begins to ask him. Look in verse 28. And this is where the second phase, the Roman phase, begins. First, before Pontius Pilate. Once again, questioning about Jesus' identity and the charges against him. Now, if you want to, you don't need to copy all that down if you don't want to. I can, or one of the staff can provide a copy for you later. Um, we just couldn't get it all on the screen at the same time. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. The Praetorium is the place where the Roman governor lived, or in this particular instance, since he normally 
had his residence in Caesarea. Whenever he came to Jerusalem for a feast, he took up residence in the Herodian palace, a palace built by Herod the Great, where his son Herod Antipas now lived, and the Roman governor came there and stayed during the feast days, as this was. And so it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but made eat the Passover. Now, isn't that ironic? Sadly ironic. Here were these Jewish leaders who were determined to have Jesus executed, and yet they were worried about ceremonial uncleanness so that they could eat the Passover later that day. And they were actually trying to put the Passover lamb himself to death. So Pontius Pilate comes out, since they wouldn't come into the palace where he would normally hold, hold court, he had to bring his uh, seat of judgment, Bema, out with him and set up trial outside. So when he gets outside, he says, what accusation did you bring against this man? No doubt that they had, they had already told him this was about to happen, and he was prepared for it. And so when, this is their answer. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But you said to him, we are not permitted to put to death anyone to death. They had already lost their one opportunity about desecration of the temple. Now they had to depend on Roman law to have Jesus executed. And for that, they needed a Roman violation of the law. And this is why the charge of being the king of the Jews is used, because that would be a threat to the power of Rome. At least that's what they thought. And notice that Jesus knew this full well. In fact, he's known this from the very beginning who fulfilled the word which Jesus spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was going to die. If Jesus were to die at the hands of the Jewish people, they would have stoned him. That was the method of execution. But Jesus said way back in John chapter 3, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then again in chapter 12, if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He knew he was going to be lifted up on a cross and die a Roman death. This was the, form, the favored form of execution by the Romans. It was not an uncommon death at all. It was very, very common. And so here, Pilate then finding out that they want, they want him involved in this procedure, he turns to question Jesus. Verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? All four Gospels tell us that this was the first question that Pilate asked. Are you the king of the Jews? That was loaded. And Jesus turned the tables on him and said, did you come to this conclusion on your own, or are these charges from somewhere else? Because Jesus, of course, is the king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews at that time. Only his kingdom is completely different from what they were thinking. And so, 
Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? So Jesus says, well, let me explain my kingship. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, so my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus didn't come to establish just another aspect of the Roman Empire or a Jewish equivalent. He came to establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When people are loyal to him because they love him and by faith and the triumph of the gospel. There will be time for that eternal kingdom, but the cross has to come before the crown. Otherwise, Jesus would not have anybody in his kingdom. There would be no loyal followers of his because they would all be lost. This had to come first. And there will be time for that kingdom later. But Jesus posed no threat to the Roman Empire, and Pilate realized it. The narratives tell us that three times Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And yet he turned him over to be crucified anyway. So Pilate says, verse 37, So you are a king. Jesus says, more literally it says, you're saying this. This is your words, not mine. Yes, I am, but not in the way you think. For this reason I have been born, and for this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? Sarcastically. In that day and age, what we now call relativism was very popular. It, it all comes with the territory believing in numerous gods and goddesses. I mean, where's the truth in all that mess? One man's truth is another man's lie. And yet Jesus believed in absolute truth. In fact, he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see the irony here? Pontius Pilate is standing in front of truth incarnate and says, what is truth? And he's completely blind, can't see it. There is absolute truth. The scriptures give us absolute truth about who God is, about who we are as sinners, and about the fact that he has provided one and only one way of salvation through this man who bore our sins. That's absolute truth. This is God's truth. Jesus testified about it. And then, Jesus is taken to Herod Antipas. After Pilate says, what is truth? He sends him to Herod Antipas. And John completely skips over that. That's the second Roman part here. Part two. Herod Antipas, Pilate passing the buck to Antipas. This was recorded only in Luke's gospel. As I said a moment ago, they both were in the same building, the Herodian palace. And so this, all this involved was leading Jesus to the other side of the same building. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist executed just a couple of years earlier. 
And now he has a chance to see Jesus, and he wants to see a miracle. Jesus refuses. But he's too crafty to get involved in this situation, so he sends him right back to, to Pontius Pilate. And that's where we pick up part three of the Roman trial recorded in John, beginning in verse 38. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no guilt in him. Isn't this all part of the gospel? This is critical to our understanding of the gospel. I mean, we say this, but let's not pass it by without thinking about it. Jesus, from the moment he was born, to his, through his death and resurrection and ascension, never sinned one time. It wasn't just that he wasn't guilty here. He was never guilty of any sin. That is why he was qualified to be the Savior of sinners. And Pilate, having, been told, having told them, I find no guilt in him, tries to find a way out of this mess. Pontius Pilate was an evil man. He hated the Jewish people. He hated being there. History tells us what kind of man he was. And there are references to it even in the New Testament before this. How he killed a whole bunch of Galileans who had come to Jerusalem for, to, to sacrifice. And yet, he was treading on dangerous ground because he had already gotten in trouble with Caesar for his mistreatment of the Jews. They had complained time and time again about him. This is why he seems to be so wishy-washy here. He's such a wimp because he does not want to have to answer to Caesar again. And he's trying to find a way out, and this is what he does. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now, this is another incident that occurs in all four Gospels, this Barabbas episode. And once again, John just gives us a small summary of it. The other three Gospels give a lot more detail. Why is this Barabbas episode so important? I think it's because this story encapsulates the nature of the Gospel. Our gospel message. It's, it's an enacted truth about what the gospel means. Who was this man? Look at verse 40. So they cried out again saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now the word robber there, or often translated thief, is actually a much more specific term. It means a revolutionary, a seditionist, a rebel. In fact, Mark 15, 7 connects Barabbas with murderers who led a rebellion. He was one of these zealots. And almost certainly the two other thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus were his buddies. They were caught up in the same rebellion and they were going to die the same day. And he too then was on trial for being a revolutionary, for being a threat to the Roman Empire for being an insurrectionist, the same charge against Jesus. Do you know what this means? 
This means that Jesus literally died in Barabbas' place. That should have been him on that middle cross between his two buddies. That should have been him standing before Pilate. That should have been him being condemned. That should have been him taking the cross, the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary, where he was crucified. But instead, Jesus took his place. That was Jesus on that cross that should have been Barabbas. For the same charge of sedition. Does that not illustrate the gospel so well? Jesus died once for all. 1 Peter 3.18 The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. There on Calvary. Calvary is the uh, Latin translation of the word for skull. Golgotha in Aramaic. We get our word cranium from the word in Greek. They all mean the same thing. Skull. It reminds us of death. That's the whole point. The Romans picked this spot. There was a natural outcropping there just outside Jerusalem, looking into the side of a hill that looks just like a skull. And whether it's the same one that you can see in Jerusalem today or a different one from the first century, the point is still the same. The Romans picked that to remind people of the place of death where they executed criminals. And that's where they took Jesus. And that's where he died for you just as surely as he died in Barabbas' place. I've heard people say that one of the reasons they don't like the Christian faith is because it's a bloody religion. They don't want to have anything to do with the bloody religion. Well, you know, it really doesn't matter what we want. What matters is what God wants. Writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus provides forgiveness for those who have faith in him. And Jamie will tell us the rest of the story in chapter 19 next week. When our uh, worship team come forward, we're going to have the, Lord's, the uh, Lord's Supper here in a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your great love to us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have because of what our Savior did in dying for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. For Jesus' sake, amen.